Welcome to Fairfax Church. We're so glad that you are with us this morning. We've got a couple of announcements for you. Hey, Fairfax. We're so glad you joined us today. Wherever you are on your faith journey, there is a next step to take. If you're new here or want to join a small group or want to start serving or join one of our teams, just click the buttons on your screen or come out in the lobby if you're in person and find us. And we would love to help you get connected around here. Thank you, thank you, thank you for donating to our 40-day fill-up. You guys brought in over $5,000 worth of pantry items and over 20,000 diapers. We've been able to give bags away to people in need in the community, and we're gonna continue to fill up our resource center. So make sure to keep checking our VOMO app for ways to help us continue to stock the center and to help these families in need. Our Global 5K is back this year, and we are so excited. On June 5th, we're gonna be running at Occoquan Regional Park. And this year, we are raising $20,000 for one of our global partners, Villages of Hope. Villages of Hope is an orphanage in Zambia that has an incredible model for helping vulnerable children. So be sure to go to our website, register for the race, and you can find out all the details there. Everything we do around this place is made possible by your incredible generosity. If you'd like to give today and you're here in person, you can use the boxes in the back of the sanctuary, or you can text or give online. We can't thank you enough, Fairfax, for all that you do to make the kingdom come here in Fairfax and around the world. That's it for me. But first, Fairfax, we know how excited you are about your coffee. So check out this fun message from Ronnie. All right, Fairfax, we are less than a week away from the moment you've been waiting for the great room opening on the weekend services. It's been awesome hanging out with our volunteers, both ones that have been here before, as well as those new volunteers. And we've been training and preparing to serve you some great beverages. If you're interested in serving and weren't able to make it to one of the trainings, that's okay. Go ahead and reach back out to me and we can do one-on-one -on -one training throughout the week, or you can join us during the services and train then as well. I like to tell our volunteers, um, the Great Room really is a place where, uh, whether you've been around here for a long time or whether you're just coming in, it tends to draw people in. So we have this awesome opportunity to just welcome a lot of new families. And it's just an incredible way to serve and get to know others in the church. So reach out if you're interested. Fairfax, we love you. And I look forward to seeing you in the great room. Did you guys catch that latte art Ronnie was showing off at the end of that video? Uh, it's good to be with you. My name is Jessica Eitvlecht. Whether you are joining us in person or online, I'm so glad you're here. Okay, I, I don't know if you saw it online, but I have to tell you. The first, last night and this morning, I was late getting up on stage, both services, and I was so determined. I am not gonna be late. I'm not gonna miss my cue that I was like five minutes early up here. So um, anyway, I'm sorry. Maybe we'll get it next time. Uh, not this weekend, but someday. Um, all right, so uh, I am usually, I'm, or I'm one of the pastors here. I'm our pastor to students, and so I spend most of my time in the hangar across the lobby with our teenagers, uh, which is my honor and my privilege. I love our students, but, uh, but I get to be here with you this weekend, which I'm super excited about, and uh, it's just a joy. So uh, thank you so much. I, it's been a minute since I was in here with you on the weekend, and so a few developments that have happened in the life of my family. I would like to introduce you to one of them. Kevin and I welcomed Annalise Sue into our home on October 22nd of last year. This is her. She um, somehow is, thank you, that's really nice of you. 
Uh, she's a delight. She somehow, according to the calendar, is six months old, which I'm certain is a lie, but, uh, but that's what it says. So, um, and then uh, this is her with my daughter, Ella, who is three. And um, Ella is at that stage where uh, she doesn't want to take her picture taken. Like she won't look at the camera no matter what. And so this is literally the best picture I have of her from like the last six months. Like she just won't. She won't do it. So anyway, so that's what's been going on at the Eitvelect house for the last uh, little bit. And so, yeah, we are in the third week of an 11-week series that we are doing on the book of Acts. And um, it is a study about how the church was launched and about how it was transformed from this little Jewish sect to this multi-ethnic, multicultural global movement where everyone was welcome. And as Rod mentioned the last couple of weeks, Acts was written by Luke, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke. Acts is the second part of a, of a two-part series of books of, of Luke and then Acts. And, uh, and it was written to a guy named Theophilus. And we don't know much about Theophilus, but uh, a little bit that we can kind of figure out about him because he commissioned these two books to be written. He must have been a man of some means. And uh, Luke writes in a kind of a persuasive tone throughout the book. He's trying to convince us of something. And so it's entirely possible that, that Theophilus was maybe a skeptic or somebody who um, was trying to figure out what exactly he thought about this Jesus movement. And so um, two weeks ago, Rod talked about how Jesus spent 40 days after his resurrection convincing his followers that he really was alive and teaching them about the kingdom of God. And then the last thing Jesus does before he ascends into heaven is uh, he gives them this promise in Acts chapter one, verse eight, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Then last week, we talked about the fulfillment of the first part of that first, the Holy Spirit kind of coming on the disciples and all those who were gathered on the day of Pentecost and how the Holy Spirit fire like descends that day and it falls on everyone, no matter their age or their race or their gender or their class or their background. And Rod asked us to let that same spirit fall on us and transform us the same way the Holy Spirit has been transforming believers for thousands of years. This week, we're going to look at what ultimately becomes the fulfillment of the second part of that verse eight, how the witness moved beyond Jerusalem. And I'll be honest with you, this is a bit of a dark story, but I think it's an important one. So I hope that you will hang with me. So from Acts two, where we were last week, to Acts six, where we're going to pick up the story today, we see story after story of uh, the Jerusalem church growing, of of the Jerusalem Jews coming to know Jesus. It's so-and-so preached or such-and-such happened, and the Lord added daily the number who were being saved. And then we arrived at Acts 6, and if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to follow along with me a little bit. We're going to kind of pop through this chapter 6 and the first part of chapter 7, so I want to give you some context to what's going on, particularly if you're going to go back and read it uh, in more detail later on this week. So the next two plus chapters of Acts are a significant turning point in the spread of the gospel, and it all centers around this new guy named Stephen. So as Rob talked about a few weeks ago, the church in Jerusalem is a multi-ethnic, multicultural collection of believers from the jump, but it was still made up of humans. And humans don't always get everything right all the time. I don't know if you knew. In Acts 6, we read about a conflict that has come up in the congregation. Chapter 6, verse 1. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Okay, 
Hebraic Jews are local Jews. They're Jews who grew up in Palestine. They speak Hebrew or Aramaic, which is kind of a, a street dialect of Hebrew. And, uh, and they're locals, they're from there. They, they probably know some Greek because that's the language of the empire, but, uh, but they mostly speak Hebrew in their homes and in the, in the synagogues and stuff like that. And then we have these Hellenistic Jews who are Greek-speaking Jews. And they're Jews who have migrated to Jerusalem from places like West Africa, Egypt, Asia Minor, uh, all over the place. And um, they likely knew very little, if any, Hebrew. They primarily spoke Greek. And they have kind of formed their own worshiping communities within Jerusalem. So there's plenty of reasons uh, why you would find Jews in places other than historic Israel at this point, uh, namely the uh, exile by the Assyrians in 733 BC. But there was also slavery that would take Jews out of the area to other places around the world or around the empire. And then they would, when they were freed from slavery, they would migrate their way back to Jerusalem. But regardless, we have all of these Jews who are Greek-speaking, who live in Jerusalem, and, uh, and they have spent, in some cases, their, their ancestry does not necessarily come from Jerusalem, but yet they've maintained some resemblance of their Jewish faith. They still consider themselves Jewish, Jerusalem, and that place is still significant for them, and that's part of why they're back here in Jerusalem. But they speak Greek, and it's, uh, it's been much harder for them to maintain their language or their customs. I learned this week that it was common for Jewish men uh, as they approached the end of their life to travel back to Jerusalem because they wanted to die in their, uh, like their home place, you know, their ancestral home. And so they and their wives and their, their property would travel back to Jerusalem and then these men would die and their widows would be left without any real family nearby, without a, the community they grew up in to really support them. And as you can imagine, the cultural limitations of the day meant that women who were widows didn't have a whole lot of options available to them. And so uh, so this is what we're hearing in this first part of chapter six is that there are both uh, Jews that are local Jewish women, local Jewish widows who um, are getting food, daily distributions of food and weekly distributions of food. And then there's also these Hellenistic or Greek speaking women who are uh, receiving food. This was a common practice in the synagogues in Jerusalem for them to distribute food to widows, both on a weekly and a daily basis and clothes and other things that they needed in order to survive. And the church picked up that practice as there became a, a what would eventually become called the Christian, a Christian church, they picked up that practice and were also distributing food on a weekly and daily basis. And these Hellenistic widows have come to the 12 and said, hey, we're being discriminated against. They're getting more than we are. We aren't getting enough. And this comes to the 12 and the 12 are like, listen, we kind of got a lot on our plate right now. We're busy telling people about Jesus. Let's make a committee and let's have them deal with it. And so the entire congregation, all of the believers in the area, they come together and they nominate seven men to be a part of this committee that's going to take over the distribution of the food and resolve this issue. And they do something, I think, kind of interesting. They nominate seven Hellenistic men, Greek-speaking men. And so, uh, so they choose seven, and that's based on their names, based on uh, the names as they are in the text that we can kind of surmise that they're Greek-speaking or Hellenistic men. And so, uh, so they choose gr- people from the discriminated against group to resolve the food issue for the entire group. And That's where we come up in chapter 6, verse 8, with this guy, Stephen. So we read in chapter 8 that Stephen is a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 6. So Stephen is this rising star in the Jerusalem church. In verse 8, now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom of the Spirit. 
the Spirit gave him as he spoke. So these are the synagogue of the freedmen. These are freed uh, Jews who were formerly slaves who have been freed and have migrated back to Jerusalem. So these are Greek-speaking Hellenistic Jews who are part of this freedmen of the synagogue, and they've kind of formed this own worshiping community among them. Now, we don't know. The text doesn't tell us what the origin of their dispute with Stephen was. Like, why did they set their sights on him? Uh, but we do know, based on uh, what the text tells us, is that, that Stephen was a, a really uh, talented orator, and so he could debate with the best of them. In fact, um, there was one translation that I read that said that he humiliated them with his arguments. So, so he stands their own, and they, uh, they don't like that, and so they lodge a disinformation campaign against him. They accuse him of blasphemy against Moses and God, accusations that, while patently false, are like just enough true or have like just enough resemblance of truth that it makes it easy for the broader uh, community to believe. So uh, their campaign is highly successful because we read in verse 12 that common people, religious officials, and scholars all join together in this uprising against Stephen. And in this uh, like surprise raid, they capture him and they drag him before the Sanhedrin on trumped up charges. And if you're thinking to yourself, Sanhedrin, that word sounds familiar to me. That's because Jesus was also dragged before the Sanhedrin on trumped up charges after he was arrested. So they convince some witnesses to give false testimony against Stephen, and then the council turns to Stephen to ask for his defense, and now we're in chapter 7. We have now what is one of the longest sermons in the entire New Testament. Luke gives a lot of column inches to Stephen's defense of himself. Most of this chapter is Stephen recounting Jewish history from Abraham forward, talking about God's faithfulness in the face of human infidelity and as well as the history of how God has made God's presence known throughout their shared history, that God's glory, remember from Rod's message uh, just last week, that God's glory has been manifest in many different ways over the years, that God has taken on different forms as the need arose. If, however it was that God's presence needed to appear in that moment, that God has taken on that form, always for the glory of God, that God's, God's glory, God's presence has been manifest in different ways over the years, depending on how God saw fit to be revealed. God has not limited the manifestation of God's presence and glory to one location ever, and certainly not now, to the temple. Stephen's point then is that if you, Jewish people, whom he then refers to as stiff-necked in reference to the Jews of Moses' day, if you, Jewish people, can't see that God's glory is being revealed through Jesus, then that's on you, and you just don't want to see it. You're being disobedient in rejecting Jesus, just as your ancestors before you rejected God's glory and God's activity and God's servants. So as you might imagine, this ticks some people off. Uh, I mean, Stephen doesn't mince words here. If you go back and read it this week, you'll see he kind of lets them have it over the course of this sermon. And then in verse 54, we read this. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. Other translations say they could contain themselves no longer. They boiled with anger, they clenched their jaw, and they gnashed their teeth. And in the face of what is quickly becoming a violent, angry mob, Stephen has a vision. Verse 55, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. 
So Stephen's vision is this exclamation point on this sermon that he's just preached. He's just finished telling us about how the manifestation of God's glory has taken on different forms throughout Jewish history. And now he's saying that the glory of God is up in heaven and that Jesus is standing at the most exalted place at the right hand of God. And the implication here is not only that he sees the glory of God, which has been limited to just a few prophets over the course of the Old Testament, but also that God's glory, if it's in heaven, is not anymore in the temple. And furthermore, it's not anymore in Jerusalem. Now listen, uh, Stephen is a Jew. He isn't rejecting his Jewishness here. The point is not that God can't be found in the temple. God can and is. The point is God can't be confined there. God can't be controlled or manipulated by the building or the rituals or the power moves of the temple hierarchy. Stephen does not oppose the temple. What's being opposed is a God-in-the-box theology that has these magical overtones that reduces God and God's activity and God's presence, the glory of God to a formula. Do A, pray B, get C. That's what he is opposing. Stephen is saying that God determines where and how God's presence will be manifest, and God does so for the glory of God and not for the agenda of humanity. Luke doesn't want us to jump too quickly past this. And so in the next verse, he repeats the vision, but he puts it in Stephen's voice. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen explains his vision in a way that's very similar to the way the Old Testament prophets would have talked about their visions, where they would have described it as seeing the heavens open and seeing this otherworldly activity, the angels going about their business to and from the throne room. Things like that are the ways the Old Testament prophets used to describe their visions. And so he's describing it in that same way. And this is where the story takes a turn. You probably saw this coming. Verse 57, at this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. I think this can best be described as as an angry blind rage. And it's going nowhere good. But let's pause and try to take a quick step back to get a sense of maybe where these people are coming from before we rush past their rage to the violent outcome. What's been placed before them by Stephen is the argument that their God is on the move, that something new is happening, an argument that they should, in theory, be on board with based on their history, but instead, they are enraged. Why? It seems to me that they want to protect their religion, their worldview, their way of being in the world more than they want to follow God that they are not entirely interested in the new thing that God is doing, if that new thing threatens their position of power and relative comfort. And I don't entirely blame them. They are living under Roman occupation. They have had to fight to keep what they have. Perhaps they have had to make some small concessions along the way to the powers that be in order to sacrifice some things in order to to maintain what they deem to be the greater good, to preserve at all costs the temple culture. After all, they've held on to this faith through exile and through diaspora, through slavery, through occupation. And I understand how when you have been fighting for your way of life for so long, that anything new could feel like a threat, that it kind of cuts to your identity. When you've declared that this, this way of being faithful, this is what matters, this is the most important thing, and someone, or in this case, thousands of someones come along and say, yeah, but that's not the most important thing anymore. 
there's a new thing that's the most important thing. I understand how that could feel like the world is shifting under you and you have to do whatever you can to hold on, to keep it from falling apart. I understand because I think that we do it too. Because I'll speak for myself, I personally have been guilty of letting my identity be defined by the way I do church instead of by the way I follow God. Because I know that I too have been guilty of making my faith about this narrowly defined perspective, not because I am certain that is where God is, but because of fear, because of pride, because to sit in judgment is easier than to allow myself or my faith to be challenged in any way. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you also have been less than gracious towards those who seem to be heading in a direction you don't understand or agree with. Maybe you also have found yourself feeling threatened or angry or defensive when someone strays from the religious priorities that you hold most dear. Now, I'm not suggesting that everything that comes along that you disagree with or that gives you pause in your faith, I'm not suggesting that every single one of those things is of God. But I am suggesting that we are sometimes guilty of God-in-a-box theology. And I, for one, don't want to miss the new thing that God is doing today because I am too angry or too busy being defensive about the thing that God did yesterday. I believe with my whole heart that God is still doing something new that God continues to be made manifest in new ways in order to make known the glory of God. I believe that God is still busting out of boxes and it is up to me, to you, to all of us together to declare the glory of God, the presence of God, anywhere we see it, everywhere we see it, however we see it. That by the grace of God, we might never find ourselves so threatened, so focused on preserving our own way of doing things that we are provoked to a mob mentality that behaves as this mob behaved. Verse 58, they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Yep, it's that Saul. It's the one that you're thinking of, the Saul who would later be renamed Paul, the Saul who would go on to write major portions of our sacred text, that Saul is the one leading and overseeing and giving approval to this mob and this execution. There's obviously more to come about him later, but before we move past this, I want you to note that the peop- these people, the council, the Sanhedrin, the, act- the accusers, nobody took a vote There was no guilty verdict proclaimed. They don't make any sort of even a show of a fair trial. And they carry out the execution without the approval of the Roman government, which was against the law. The Roman government required that if the Sanhedrin decides to execute someone, to put someone to death for a religious reason, that the Roman government had to approve of the execution. And they don't wait for there to be any Roman approval. So this is an extrajudicial killing. He's not proclaimed guilty. He's not sentenced. The angry mob takes over and murders him. But the story doesn't end there. Verse 59, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. If you're thinking to yourself, wow, I feel like there's another similarity there between him and Jesus, you're absolutely right. And and Luke wanted you to notice that he says some similar things there that Jesus said 
on the cross. I think the gift for us here is that Stephen offers for us a model of how we keep our own hearts in the yes position, how we keep ourselves away from some of the mob mentality that led to that moment, and how we keep ourselves seen and discerning what it is that God is up to. The first prayer is this, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. On the cross, Luke records in his gospel that Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he said this, he breathed his last. So both Jesus and Stephen, both men in their final moments are reaffirming their trust and their faith in their God, Jesus. For, for Jesus, uh, for God the Father, and for Stephen, for God the Son. Both were saying that come what may, I trust you. I commit my spirit to you. Spirit there is the word, it's the Greek word pneuma. And, uh, and pneuma has a lot of different meanings. It can mean breath, it can mean uh, spirit, it can mean fire, it can mean wind. Uh, it kind of has about the essence of your life, the essence of who you are is your, is your pneuma, your spirit. And the Hebrew equivalent of that word is the word that's used in Genesis when God breathes life into the first man and the first woman. That, so the very same creator who breathes life into us at our creation is the one that Stephen and Jesus are now re- giving their life back to, they're recommitting their, uh, their breath of life, their pneuma back to God in these moments. Obviously, it is my sincere hope that neither I nor any of you will ever face death by execution. But we all have faced moments, or we will in the future, where we have to make a choice, where we have to choose to trust in Jesus, to trust in God with our lives or not, to proclaim to our dying breath that our hope, our trust our future is secure with Jesus. And that is not only true of our eternal future, but of our immediate future as well. I commit my breath of life to God, my pneuma to God, not just with my death, but with my life. Not just with my eternity, but with my present. That God's capable hands might guide me and direct me and lead me, not just into heaven someday, but here every day while I'm on the earth that I might be an instrument of God's will here in Fairfax, in our communities and schools and governments and neighborhoods and in my home and in my family. May I live my life with the same assurance now that I have it for death in the future. Because when we consistently and continuously commit our lives back to the one who gave us life, it helps us keep our focus on where it should be, to keep our gaze in the heavens and our hearts tuned to the glory of God. And Stephen's second prayer, I think, is also helpful to us. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. In Luke 23, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And he's praying to God to forgive the people who are currently killing him. He's praying for them. It's really hard to hang on to resentment and bitterness and anger towards a person when you're actively praying for them. I tell my students this all the time, that if you are struggling with forgiveness for someone, if you're struggling to let go of something that someone did to you, one thing that you can try doing is praying for them, praying God's best for them, praying forgiveness, that God would forgive them. And eventually, if you continue to pray for that person over and over again, then eventually you'll find yourself actually meaning the words that you're saying, that you actually do hope that God forgives them, that you actually do want God's best for that person. Because prayer for somebody is the first step towards actually forgiving that person when they have caused some sort of a hurt or an injustice against you. Jesus prayed for his enemies and uh, with his death also forgave his enemies. That's what the cross was all about, right? Forgiveness no matter what it is that you've done. 
Now, I have to admit to you that I tend to personally uh, be a little bit aspirational with this resentment. Like, I know that I should be willing to forgive somebody no matter what it is that they have done or how they've wronged me. Uh, That if Jesus can do it from the cross, then I should be able to do it for the girl who hurt my feelings in fifth grade. I understand that I should be able to do that. But I think I sometimes give myself a pass by saying, yeah, but he was Jesus. Like, of course, Jesus can forgive people from the cross, right? But you know who wasn't Jesus? Stephen. And here he is, innocent of the charges against him, having rocks rain down on him in order to kill him, and he prays that prayer of forgiveness. No one has asked him to pray for forgiveness. Probably no one that he was praying for even felt that they needed forgiveness or his prayers. But Stephen knew that forgiveness frees us. We simply cannot live as healthy, spirit-filled Jesus followers with unforgiveness festering in our hearts and heads. The anger, judgment, defensiveness, fear, and pride that we feel sometimes is allowed to take root, it's fed, it's fertilized when we harbor resentment and unforgiveness. Now let me remind you what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not saying, whatever it is that you did for me, it's fine. It's not affirming that the hurt that was caused against you or the injustice, that that it was okay, that it was even, that it was a good thing. That's not what what forgiveness is. Jesus certainly did not hang on the cross praying, Father, forgive them, they do not know what they do. And what he's really saying there is certainly not what he's really saying is, all the sin that I'm up here suffering for, it's fine, don't worry about it, it's good. That's not what Jesus is doing. Similarly, forgiveness is not reconciliation with the people that you are forgiving. It's not reconciliation or or a rejoining of the relationship of the people that you are forgiving. That sometimes happens, and sometimes that's maybe a second step in the forgiveness process, but that's not what forgiveness is. Stephen was certainly not reconciling with or being in agreement with the people who are actively killing him as he prays that prayer, right? So those are some things that forgiveness is not. Let me tell you what forgiveness is. Forgiveness simply says, this hurt ends with me. I will not respond in kind. I will not hold on to my anger. I will not allow you and what you have done to me to have any power over me. I forgive you. Because forgiveness frees us, not overnight, and not without heavy doses of prayer and maybe some therapy, but forgiveness says you don't get to live rent-free in my mind another day. Because of Jesus, I am free from the power of my own sin, and I am also free from the power of your sin against me. I think this text maybe offers us one more check against our tendency to value our religion and our way of doing things over sometimes a relationship with Jesus. Continuing on in verse 1 of chapter 8, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. The stoning of Stephen represents a break in the relationship of the Jews, a breaking point for the Jews. Prior to this point, the, uh, the Jesus followers had been welcome in the temple. They had been still considered Jews, just maybe a sect of Judaism. And after the stoning of Stephen, that really is just no longer the case. In chapter four, Luke says there are 5,000 men among the believers. And in chapter eight, most of them leave Jerusalem. So when you include the women and children, we're talking about between five and 10,000 people fleeing for their lives. 
Saul's goal is to destroy this little sect that he feels is a threat to his identity. And he leads the persecution. The Greek word that's used here that says to destroy them means to tear from limb to limb like an animal. But instead of destroying the church, Saul's persecution spread the gospel beyond Jerusalem. It sparked the beginning of the fulfillment of that verse that we started off with, that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, I don't want to romanticize persecution. People lost their lives. Thousands died. They, they ran for their lives. They lost their homes. They lost their property. There was trauma and there was fear. And there were all the things that come with running for your life. It was not a good thing that the persecution happened. But it also wasn't the end of the story. It also didn't defeat the spread of the gospel. In fact, it only intensified it. Throughout history, when the church has suffered persecution, when followers of Jesus have had genuine fears for their life over their faith, the church has grown. In fact, it's exploded because it's God's church and God loves the church. With all of its failings and missteps, the church continues to be the bride of Christ continues to be a primary way that people experience the transforming love of Jesus. Persecution not only can't stop that, it generally, in fact, always accelerates it. We see that now in places around our world where the Christian faith is, is outlawed, where, uh, where proselytizing is against the law, that those are some of the places where more people are coming to know Jesus than almost anywhere else in the world. So if God is the defender of the church and sees it through seasons of persecution like the one in Acts 8, then how much more so is God going to see the church through other seasons of conflict or of discord? My point is this. It's not my job to defend the church. That's God's job. My job, your job, our job, is to declare the glory of God made manifest all around us. In this expression of the church that we call home, but also anywhere else that we see it, it's our job to turn our eyes to heaven and to commit ourselves to Jesus. It's our job to not allow pride or fear or bitterness or anger to take root in us through unforgiveness. We have a big job. Those are hard things to do. But so does God. We can trust God to do God's job to be faithful to God's church. We can trust God to see the church through whatever comes its way. The crucifixion of Jesus and the stoning of Jesus are the bookends of the story of the first church. From the time that Jesus is crucified to the time that Stephen is crucified, we see out of nowhere a community arise. A church that sprung up out of nowhere. When the disciples of Jesus were certain that all was lost and this whole thing was over, Jesus comes back just in time to say, I am just getting started. A church that uh, proves yet again that God is on the move and it doesn't always look like we think that it will look. It's a church that welcomes believers from all backgrounds, both young and old, male and female, slave and free, and thousands flock to this church because what they found there wasn't about a religion or a ritual or a sacrifice or religious politics. What they found was a relationship with this man, Jesus, who sees them in all of their humanity and says, you, I want you, and I want you, and I want you, I want all of you. I want to heal the hurting parts of you. I want to fix the broken things, and I want to send you out to change the world. And that Jesus of the Jerusalem church is the same Jesus who is here today, inviting you to let him do the same in your own life 
to heal the hurt places, to fix what's broken, and to send you out to be an agent of his will here on the earth. The glory of God is being made manifest all around us and you are invited to proclaim it to the world, to bear witness to God's activity in the world and declare that God is still making all things new. Pray with me. God, we give you thanks for the story of Stephen. We give you thanks that you are faithful to us. We give you thanks that you are faithful to your church. God, we uh, pray that we might be ever focused on who you are, that you might give us a vision of you, that you might give us eyes to see your presence made manifest, that you might give us ears to hear when your glory is declared, that you might give us hearts to understand, to discern when something is of you, that we might forgive those who have hurt us so that we can be free to chase after you, to follow you, that you might bring new things out of those that are dead, that you might bring life where there was no life. We know you are doing something new, God, and we don't want to miss it. So help us to be faithful to you in all things. May we be agents of your will here on the earth. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Stand and worship with us.